Ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. It's officially December, which means many of us are beginning to slow down and ready ourselves for the festive season. But it's also the perfect time to look back on some of this year's biggest headlines. And who better to help us work through the noise than Daily Maverick's Janet Hurd. So grab a coffee and get comfortable as we bring you this special extended episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Let's get into it. Janet, welcome back for this special episode of The Whole Week Wrap in which we are looking back on some of the biggest news stories of this past year. It's been quite a year. Absolutely. Morning, Lizanne. Nice to be here. I was just going back on the year's events and I mean, I think if there's any one feeling or word I get is punch drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Just too many, too many of everything. And I always just think of the people who are actually directly involved in all the incidents and and shocks that have happened this year. Definitely, yeah. So let's get into the big international headlines first. And I think nothing comes close to the devastation of the war in Gaza. But it certainly hasn't been the only conflict that's caused great disruptions globally. I mean, we've also felt it in South Africa as much as we kind of feel that we live a relatively sheltered life. Our economy definitely felt it. So there's the Ukraine war, which is still ongoing. And in fact, we're nearing day 700 of that war, which is just unthinkable. And then we also have the horrific bombings in Gaza. So why do you think these two conflicts have shaken the world and South Africans as much as they have this past year? Lizanne, I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine, it was in February last year. So it's actually quite, you know, as you said, it's, it's we're hitting almost two years of that war. And then on top of that, the world is shaken, really, really out of any sense of, although the Middle East has always been there as a conflict zone, incredibly difficult conflict zone, it really just hit us initially with the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, and then the incredibly insane retaliation. The two together, it kind of took the focus off the Ukraine, which had dominated for so long in our global politics. Suddenly it was all back on the one issue that really South Africans feel very strongly about either way. So it really kind of exploded as people try to make sense of what was happening. It was a big challenge for the media to try and navigate the story fairly without bias, which as we know is is really, really hard. To try and temper the emotions, which is really hard, and also try and navigate the story with, with, with the fact. And, mm. and that is often hard in a conflict, as we know. And especially in a situation like in Gaza, where journalists are getting killed, one of the things that struck me is how few, there were just very few war correspondents were not going into Gaza. They were relying on, on local journalists and local journalists getting killed, and the whole story just exploded. And the thing for me about, especially in this past year, is I think a lot of people globally were also exposed to war in a very real way, unlike previous wars. 
just purely because of social media and the access that we have to the footage and people speaking from within these countries. So I think that also contributed to the fact as to why these wars resonate so strongly with people because they witness what is happening. We have practically unlimited access to war footage, which I don't think we had even, you know, during the 9-11 responses. And I think that also kind of lends itself to people having this visceral reaction to these wars. Yes, absolutely. And I think that those images are were, were really difficult to to comprehend. And also, of course, there is the, the risk of information not being verified, spreading, you know, without fact checking. There was obviously a lot of that on various sides. And I think it played with the emotions and people getting really fired up. And also the language, the language of war. Just in the first few days, I just, in, as it unfolded with the Hamas attack, I felt like wire services definitely, you could feel this language that kind of needed a little bit of thought. Like, what is the what is the language being used here? And is it unbiased and, and fair? And those are the kind of debates that took place everywhere. And I think we had to all do a lot of internal discussion about how we're getting the story across. From gas explosions to deadly fires to bacterial diseases, leaving communities fearful of the most basic of resources, water. We reflect on some of the most shocking events that left South Africans shaken, but also angered. Let's get into local news, and it's been a really difficult year across the country. We've seen, firstly, so many horrific disasters. We entered this year, 2023, really traumatized by the visuals following the Boxburg blast, which happened in in December the previous year. And to date, there hasn't really been much movement in terms of accountability. But I feel like the Boxburg blast kind of set the tone for the year, as this year was filled with way too many terrible disasters. The human cost was just unthinkable. So which event had a lasting impact on you? The one that really struck me, and I think it's also the nature you hear these stories is waking up sort of early on the one morning to hear that basically dozens of people had died in a fire in the middle of the city of Johannesburg. And I was like, what? How does this happen? And then the death toll just rose and it was just, you know, sending people out into the to the area, to St. Albert's, and just monitoring and actually getting a feel for the reality, the depths of this crisis, this disaster. So that really, really did hit me. And and then also trying to unravel who these people are that were killed in all of these tragedies. Just getting quite simple answers has been really tricky. And it does give you a feeling that is anyone actually doing anything? How is the country galvanizing around these tragedies and remembering the people that died? There's been that Bree Street gas explosion in July. And where is the accountability? The cholera outbreak, you know, at mid-year there were at least 26 people who had died. We still don't have the answers to that cholera outbreak. We don't have the answer to so many things. And mm-hmm. I think this is the overriding feeling I'm left with is that even though we're asking all the questions and trying to do these investigations and inquiries and this and that, we still have very few answers to so many of these tragedies which really shouldn't be happening. The mining tragedy at the Implatz, Platinum Mine in Rustenburg where 12 people died in a, in, a, in a cage accident that again, how do these things happen and how do we comprehend them and, and actually try and learn from all these tragedies? Yeah, yeah. And I definitely agree with you in terms of the accountability aspect of it because most notably for me, the Joburg fire 
fire. It was really, the more you started digging in the days immediately after the fire, it really became clear that that incident should have been prevented because officials had received many warnings years prior to the fire breaking out and they just never did anything. And the same goes with, you know, the cholera outbreak in Hammond's Kral, as you mentioned. Again, lots of warnings for many years before where government simply should have just responded to these warnings and they didn't. This year, I think it also really exposed government for its many failures and and just for not being able to respond to the most basic things. Absolutely, Lizanne. I mean, I think it becomes noisy to demand accountability because nothing actually happens. And I think that's where the frustration comes in from civic society who are very, very strong. We have a very strong civil society who really are saving the day in so many ways. So it's not like we a broken nation. We have a very strong sort of infrastructure of action in this country, thankfully, because I think we are very resilient because of the legacies of, of the, the, where we've come from. But you thought then really, does anyone actually care? Like the people who are responsible for safety in the city of Johannesburg, I think heads need to roll. If we don't get to, to a situation where people are accountable for the jobs that they have, and it does have to come from the top, then they mustn't be there. And unfortunately, that doesn't translate in South Africa. There's very few cases where there's an immediate response. A high court judge stands defiant amid a raging war against gangs in the Western Cape. Meanwhile, the Department of Correctional Services was left red-faced following an unbelievable prison escape. This year, our justice system was at the center of the battle between good and evil. Let's move on to our justice system. And the first one I want to get into is what I call the South Africa is a movie story of the year. Tabo Besta's dramatic escape from prison. Really unbelievable how that entire story unfolded. And I want to give a shout out to Ground Up as well, because they were the ones who really brought this unbelievable story to light. And I remember when I first read their headline, I was just like, this can't be real. This is just way too bizarre. So tell me a bit about what struck you in particular about this story. They described it journalistically as a gift that kept on giving because (laughs) we didn't know the answers. You know, the story unraveled in front of our eyes, literally. So it was literally like being, as you said, in a movie because there was this question, like, what happened? And could it have been that he, you know, there was an escape and that he's alive? And there were all these questions trying to sort of figure out this incredible story. So we were all taken along for the ride and things were unraveling has ground up did one piece after the next piece after the next piece and just piecing it together. And the more they published, the more obviously that came out. And they had a lot of, you know, the way they managed the story, I think they did a really good job of managing the story because it is a story that could easily get out of hand. They were incredibly careful with the facts. I remember the first story, Daily Maverick has a relationship where we republish a lot, a lot of ground up. We have a good relationship with ground up. We've through the years have published a lot of ground up stories. And I mean, initially it was like, gosh, is this story for real? Should we republish it? But of course <laughs> we trust ground up and you think, well, they know what they're doing. And then there's a few questions asked. We have obviously interactions with the editors. And it was like the story just developed through the months. It kind of captured, I think, so much of what is happening in this country in terms of the craziness. If there isn't accountability, if people don't ask questions, the craziness that can unfold. And that is the Tabo Vesta story, which is still unfolding. And it is going to be a movie. You know, the book is out. It is going to be a a movie because it is, it's a real 
international story. I think anyone, anywhere in the world would be fascinated by the story of Tauber Vesta. So I also want to look at a victory within our, what I deem to be a still robust justice system. You brought this one to our attention for today's show. Can you tell us why you are calling Judge Daniel Tulare Judge of the Year? There's so much going on with extortion rackets and gangs and underground stuff in Western Cape and nationally. So we've had two judgments. I mean, Judge Talare sounded the alarm about collusion between institutions and state and the gangs in the Western Cape. And he's done it twice. He made another ruling just last week involving a mass murder in Kailicha, where he basically, in his ruling, he basically sounded the alarm again about how there is collusion between gangs and police within the Kailicha police station. I just hope people like the judge and that they need to be looked after in this country really well because he described that the daily lived reality of people living in Kailicha, that they cannot, there is a lack of trust of the police. And the story centered around someone wanting to give some evidence and actually feeling unsafe with the police. So you can imagine that how that ripple affects through the community. And it also comes after the Commission of Inquiry into Kailicha, where there was meant to be a completely proactive approach to actually clean up policing in Kailicha. And it's very clear from this ruling that he made last week that this is not the case. And then he'd made a, a previous ruling, actually just over a year ago, he sounded the alarm about SAP's collusion with authorities. And, and then there was an ombud to investigate links between gangsters and police officers. So that's really, that was the result of his ruling. Important judgments that reflect and hopefully will lead to something to lead to a cleanup of what appears to be very rotten. Yeah. And taking on the gangs in the Western Cape is so dangerous. Judge Tulare is literally putting his life on the line for the sake of justice. So as you've said, I, I, I really hope that he has the necessary protections in place to ensure that he can continue doing the amazing work he's been doing in addressing gang violence in the Western Cape, because we've done several stories just in this year alone, but also in the past two or three years, we've done really a lot of coverage on this as well. And it's just getting worse and worse. I remember we did a wonderful story on the anti-gang unit when they first came into being. And there was such hope that finally, you know, something is happening to address this war, because that's essentially what it is. And then it didn't last very long because the gangs infiltrated that unit as well, and that got dissolved. And now we are where we are. So really, I commend people like Judge Tulare, anyone else who's willing to speak up. Charles Kinnear immediately comes to mind as well yes. for standing up against these gangs. And unfortunately, his story is a really awful example of how far these gangs will go to hold on to power within the Western Cape. Yes, Lizanne. I mean, there are a lot of exposés and I think Carte Blanche has done some great work on investigatives to look at those links. And I think the more we do that, it's important that we just constantly expose. And again, also just with, with uh, the judge, he really is just doing his job. I don't think he, you know, in his mind, I'm sure, look, I haven't asked him, but <laughs> I would imagine, I mean, he's just making a ruling based on the evidence in front of him. So so he would probably not even see it as he's, you know, being. he's just doing, you know, what he's seen, which is what we have to do. We have to continue all doing the work that we do to try and, and get some change. Some of the biggest 
scandals of the year would not have been known had it not been for the relentless pursuit of justice by the many dedicated investigative journalists and civil society organizations out there. And surprisingly, one investigation in particular resulted in something not often seen in South Africa, accountability. So speaking of the power of journalism, let's focus on investigative journalism. And it's been a big year for us all. I don't think anyone can say that they're not aware of the Lady R debacle that's still unfolding. It very nearly led to serious political fallout, which we've discussed extensively on the show. Daily Maverick has reported on this extensively. And the Lady R incident also had a a domino effect, or as we've seen just in this past week, the Russian doll effect, which is a a direct reference to the amazing work being done by Daily Maverick and Open Secrets. Tell us a bit more about the can of worms that was opened following the Lady R incident. Well, I mean, the Lady R incident was one of those, you know, just people just being inquisitive in their little neighborhood and looking at what's going on. And that's how it unfolded. Again, I mean, it happened, I think it was in the at the end of December 2022. Mm. Um, and again, it also just took hold. I mean, it kind of, you know, it led to a complete fallout with Ambassador Brigitte, who basically said that he would bet his life on the fact that weapons were loaded onto the vessel, which sparked an inquiry, which sparked an unveiling of scrutiny and, and also put South Africa under huge pressure in terms of its stance with Russia. And I think it kind of became the sort of, though the Lady R ship was, it was a small incident, really, with lots of questions. It kind of became the focus, the sort of symbol of international relations that South Africa has or doesn't have with Russia and other countries. So it has full of intrigue, and I think that it's going to continue. I mean, we haven't seen the end of it, as we can see with the Russian doll story that has been played out in in Daily Maverick, with involving unknown assassins and cheaters, and it really is full of also very a lot of intrigue with what is actually playing out there, and it will continue to be unraveled. Think through through next year. Of course, you can read all about this on Daily Maverick's website, and we'll also have our investigation in collaboration with Open Secrets available on our website. So go check it out. There's just way too much to unpack that we simply cannot cover today. <laughs> but another big investigation that's easily one of my favorites of the year is the glorious bit of digging done by Daily Maverick on that. Tottenham Hotspur tourism deal. It was just such a revelation. And it's also one of the few exposés that actually resulted in some accountability. Tell us a little bit more about the impact this story had following your big expose. I mean, Lizanne, that was one of those sort of bolt out of the blue stories. I actually did ask Rebecca Davis, who uncovered the story. Basically, her intro was documents obtained by Daily Maverick show that the South African government, through its marketing agency, SA Tourism, is preparing to ink a deal to sponsor one of the English Premier League's best known teams, Tottenham Hotspur. And then there were PowerPoint presentations there for all to see that was the story. And that was on the 31st of January. There was complete outrage. There was hardly, I don't know anyone who really supported it. I mean, there were a few voices from sports people explaining that, you know, they really would bring great things to South Africa to have marketing. But mostly it was, my goodness, how could how could we do this? So let's give a listen to Rebecca and get better insight into how exactly this story unfolded. 
a very brave whistleblower approached Daily Maverick with documents from South African tourism. What they showed was that the Board of South African Tourism was about to sign a 1 billion rand sponsorship deal with the English Premier League football team Tottenham Hotspurs. So this deal would have seen us South African taxpayers paying a billion rand to sponsor one of the wealthiest football teams in the world. There was immediate pressure to get a story out as soon as possible because our information was that the board was heading to London within the week in order to sign this deal and make it confirmed. We also knew that on the day on which we got the documents, the board was presenting this proposal to the tourism minister, Lindiwe Sisulu. So we knew that if we were to stop the deal in its tracks, we had to publish as soon as possible. Its impact was pretty seismic because the outrage was pretty much universal. One of those rare issues on which, you know, South Africans sort of come together. Everyone pretty much was outraged at the idea that we would be spending this money on the sponsorship deal. Eventually, the deal was scrapped. It must be said that although we expected it to be immediately placed on ice, even given the level of public outrage on the matter, it wasn't quite that simple. There were several people on that board fighting for that deal tooth and nail. And one of them was the erstwhile CEO of SA Tourism, Temba Kumalo, gave this astonishing press conference where he basically yelled at South Africa for having the cheek to question the deal. But in time, the deal did get scrapped. Not just that, but the whole board was dissolved. We got a new tourism minister in the form of Patricia DeLille. The ultimate impact of the story was very strong. And as a journalist, yeah, it was one of those kind of dream come true stories. It's hard to accept that load shedding has been part of our lives since 2007. That's 16 years of national blackouts, and it's only getting worse. As we still await the appointment of ESCOM's new CEO and the energy minister makes lofty promises week after week, we cannot help but wonder when things will finally improve. So naturally, we can't look back on the year without at least acknowledging the worst load shedding we've ever seen. We've had nearly 300 days of load shedding. And on top of that, watershedding in many areas across the country. But the big question for me is, what can we do about it? Because clearly something needs to change. Right, Lizanne. We tend to be complacent when suddenly we don't have load shedding. We think, okay, now things are going to get better. But mostly this year we've had load shedding almost consistently with a few breaks. And then, as you said, with the watershedding, which is particularly hard up in Gauteng and other areas and in other provinces, they're such basic needs that, you know, you think, how could we have got to this point when we are we're actually not a poor nation. It's in our constitution that everyone has these rights. Um, and they're embedded in, in, they're ingrained in the country's DNA to actually provide such basic essentials. But it's a complete failure. Again, you know, that's what I think the, I keep referring to this punch drunk thing where we, you know, the water shedding came on top of load shedding, came on top of a lot of other real struggles and hardships of, of unemployment and poverty. And, you know, that's why people are asking these questions like, what is the future? And I do, I do think we, we are running out of time. We are running out of time to solve the problems. There's a lot of noise being made. This year was meant to be the year to solve the load shedding crisis with the arrival or appointment of Ramakhopa, our own electricity minister specifically, mm. to be there to solve the, the load shedding crisis. And I know things don't happen overnight, but to date we've not seen, we just don't, I don't think people are very confident that it is going to shift. You know, just the nature of him not getting his powers, his own powers for two months. It was announced in March. He got his powers in May. You know, and he's he's been great at talking to the nation and very he's very responsive. But 
what he says compared to what ESCOM says often contradicts each other. So there's a problem. We have a, a serious problem. It's an infrastructural problem. It's a maintenance problem. It's a problem of supply. And it's a problem of, of accountability, I think, at the end of the day. So, so somebody has to be accountable for providing, making sure that the bulk infrastructure is working, that the emergency supplies are not being abused, that the tankers are being supplied legitimately. And yet we keep hearing more and more scandals around even the water tankers now. So, mm. so, so that, that is where I think we can solve the problem. If we can just rally round and actually there's some great plans in place to solve the problem. There's not enough will. At the end of the day, you can only say there's not enough will to, to make the change that is needed, and despite all the emergency operations in place. And I think that's a, you know, the, the one word that kept coming up today and I think puts the whole entire year in context is accountability. And we haven't seen nearly enough of that. And I think, quite frankly, the country is sick and tired of just seeing things carry on as they always do with absolutely no repercussions for any of government's failings. Yes, and it has to be more urgent. So if, and sometimes it will be hard decisions taken. But the thing is that if somebody is in a position of power and something fails, the answer is to withdraw and admit that you have failed and let's get the competency in to make sure that it can, can work. We have incredibly skilled people in this country. We have a lot of brain power. And yet I think the SOEs, the state of our state-owned enterprises, are, are what is, is actually holding us back mm. enormously in terms of the development of this country. If we could get the you know, the leadership of those institutions that are so key to everything, everything about service delivery, we could really start solving the problems. From feeling the chies to spreading hope across the globe and everything in between. Despite the many challenges, 2023 has certainly been a year of hope. I don't know about you, but after all of this, I'm in desperate need of good news. <laughs> Let's get into this year's major green shoots. And I want us to kick things off with a story that has some personal significance to you. And that's this year's World Parasurfing Championship in California. Please tell us more. Thanks, Lizanne, for that, because it is a very personal story. And the disclosure is my son was selected to be on the World Parasurfing team in the kneeboard division. There were 26 nation uh, taking part in, in the World Parasurfing event in various divisions. I mean, visually impaired, prone position, some people are. I mean, it's incredible to see the level of determination and grit out in the waves. It was a big surf break. It wasn't like a, you know, they really upped the, the game for the parasurfing this year to put it on a level of international surfing. They were surfing, you know, powerful, sometimes quite gnarly, what we call gnarly break um, at Huntington Beach. For me, one I think it's a green shoot in spite of everything. I mean, the way the team actually got there, South Africa team members, under the captain, Tracy McKay, who's from KZN, in a wheelchair, she brought home a, a bronze medal. But the way that this team decided they were going to get there no matter what, with very little funding, trying to raise their own funds, very little backing. I mean, there's just still, it's parasurfing, it's not regular surfing. You know, there is just no money. Um, how that that took place and the determination. Some of the team literally flew on their own without support teams and managed to find their way into Huntington Beach. So seeing them fly the flag for South Africa under incredibly difficult situation and so proudly so really made me realize just how people just get on with it. It, it, it really lifts the mood as sport often does. 
Because, I mean, there's there's really no greater example of exactly that unifying power of sports than the Springboks win at the Rugby World Cup. For us, it wasn't just about a title and it wasn't just about the trophy. I think the entire country's morale was riding on them taking that win. Because, I mean, boy, we needed it. We needed it. Yes, Suzanne. I mean, in a way, if it was a movie, you know, you'd want to end the year on that note of, you know, holding up the trophy. <laughs> if it was a, a, a sort of movie thing because despite all that was just such a bridge building moment to see our team really come out tops is just a fantastic feeling yeah well done to them and I think you can't put a cost on what that team did for morale in this country what it does to boost this nation of course a lot of hope throughout the year simply would not have been possible without the remarkable work done by gift of the givers they've literally been everywhere this year from assisting communities in disaster-struck regions, to supporting families in war-torn countries, and even helping in countries ravaged by some of the worst wildfires in recorded history. It felt like they were everywhere this year, and they are stepping in time and again, and it's just been so inspiring to see. Design, I mean, they are everywhere. It's a bit like that little comic thing, Where's Wally? You know, it's like, yes. it's fine. <laughs> Wherever you go, you're going to see Gift of the Givers and the role that they've played internationally and in, in the Middle East now. There's such a sense of confidence that they instill, and they, I think it is, it's also their attitude, they don't, they just go in, they just get in, they roll up their sleeves and they just get things done. When a disaster happens, they land, they just arrive there. For communities to get, to, it's such basic need of emergency supplies often, and risk, and obviously a lot of rescues. But one wonders actually sometimes, like, what happens if they weren't there? And I think that's the thing. I mean, that's, you know, you always have hope because there are so many good people. There are so many people doing amazing things in this country. You know, that's that's the glass half full <laughs> kind of position. That thing, I think we always get lifted just when things are get really bad, there's something happens. And I suppose that's the nature of life. It ebbs and flows. But, you know, we, we're sitting here with some amazing people who are really yeah. inspiring. And, and thanks thanks to them. We really would not be seeing progress in a lot of areas, especially in the Eastern Cape, where we've personally also seen them jump in and assist families that we featured on our show in some of the stories that we've done in the Eastern Cape. Just seeing them jump in, say, we are here. How can we help? What do you need? And it just happens time and again, and it's just amazing to see. So may we all draw inspiration from that and try and bring change, even in small ways, in our own little worlds, because clearly that is what we need to keep the spirit of South Africa alive. Absolutely, Lizanne. I couldn't say it any other, any better. Let's hope 2024 is going to, you know, we can emerge from, from this feeling of being punch drunk. And, and, yes. and emerge and, and we can do it. We can. Yes, we can. Well, that was quite the chat. And of course, there are so many other stories and newsmakers that are just as deserving of a mention. But I mean, if we try to cover all the major events, we'll be here for weeks to come. Janet, this has been so amazing. And I also just want to take a moment to thank you for your support and joining us for so many chats throughout the year. It's been such a privilege every time speaking with you. So let's do this again in the new year sooner rather than later. Thank you and to your listeners. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. <laughs>